The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and 1077 FM HD2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Stratford University presents Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Andrew Mitchell. And it has been a, it has been a very, a very busy week in technology. Now, one of the, my favorite uh, events happened this last week. They have awarded the LG Nobel Prizes. This is the anti-Nobel Prize, and these are for, I guess, research that borders on the ridiculous. Oh, okay. We're going to find out about and that. And I love to look yeah, at these yeah. ridiculous research projects. Yeah, I already know one or two that I would point out right away. <laughs> yeah, there's one that I don't know if we can give it or not, but we may try okay, because okay. this is morning radio. <laughs> okay, we'll see what happens. Absolutely. We'll see what happens. The judgment is in the great court case between Epic and Apple over use of the App Store. We'll summarize. It's kind of a mixed mixed bag. Uh, each side won something, uh, but it uh, I think it portends something relating to the future and the App Store payment system. The idea of the week is coming from an eighth, eighth grader who had a problem with all these Zoom classes, and he decided to solve that problem using his own uh, programming skills. Uh, this week, we're going to feature Jan Coombe. Jan uh, is, was a co-founder of WhatsApp. And the reason that I'm going to feature him today is that WhatsApp was a pioneer in the development of end-to-end encrypted communication. And that became a very, very important over the last 20 years. And in observations from the bunker, I'm going to reflect on what has happened to technology over the past 20 years since 9-11. This is the 20th anniversary of 9-11. We're thinking about that. And it's had a profound impact on our society and on education, I mean, and on technology. I'm going to sort of give a broad sweep at how those changes have been executed over the last 20 years. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Michael in Boston. Dear Tech Talk, I've got an Android phone, and I'm so envious of my friends who share digital photos using AirDrop on their iPhone. Is there a simple way that they can transfer these photos to my phone? Michael in Boston, Massachusetts. Well, as you know, Android operating system and the Apple operating system don't work well together. But the good news is there is a way you, that you can easily transfer large files and, and a, large a large grouping of pictures from an iPhone to an Android phone. There's a website called ShareDrop. It's called ShareDrop.io. And you can send it 
to any device on the network you're on or on a different network. That's It's really quite, uh, quite convenient. It's drop and drag. You simply drop the file from your uh, iPhone symbol to the or uh, to your phone symbol to the phone symbol of that you're trying to communicate with. You just drag them over there, and the files will transfer automatically. And um, then the file transfer starts as soon as the uh, recipient accepts the file, just like it does on uh, AirDrop. Now, to send a file to a device on a different network, you click the plus button. And there will be uh, instructions that come up. And basically, it shows you a QR code. You send that QR code to the recipient phone. They simply scan that QR code, and it connects them to your to your phone. So it's very easy to do. ShareDrop uses secure and encrypted peer-to-peer connections. They transfer information directly from one phone to another. It doesn't go through an intermediate server. This means that it's never transferred through somebody who could be snooping on look, and looking at your pictures. Now, to achieve this, ShareDrop uses WebRTC, which is Web, Web Real-Time Communication, which is provided natively by the browsers in both the Android phone as well as the, uh, the iPhone. So, Michael, uh, give that uh, ShareDrop.io a, a try and let me know how it works for you. We got an email from Remy in Reedville. Dear Tech Talk, I have so many pictures on my smartphone, and I have friends over at the house. I'd like to print a picture and share photos. What wireless printer do you recommend for my prints? I, I don't want to spend a lot of money, but I'd like a you know really a high quality print that I just get on the spot. Remy in Reedville, Virginia. Well, Remy, being able to print pictures on demand allows you to share your pictures on the spot. I do it all the time down at the Bay House. People come down, we snap pictures out on the water, and we print up a few and share them right on the spot. I mean, that's what we used to do when we went to get our pictures printed. Now they just go into the deep, deep hole of the iPhone, and nobody ever sees them again. Now, I have a a wireless printer for printing my uh, pictures. I've got the Canon Selfie. CP1300 Wireless Compact Photo Printer. It's only $129. Now, the reason I like this, it's not an inkjet. It's a, what they call a sublimation printer. It, sub, it uses a sublimation process. to It transfers the dye from a piece of cellophane onto the paper. And it drags through, as it's printing, four pieces of cellophane that have four colors of dye, and it and the ink is transferred from that cellophane onto the picture, and after the fourth pass, it looks good. Now, the beauty of this is that uh, this sublimation dye is waterproof. If you've got an inkjet, it's not waterproof. Also, they come out instantly dry, and because of this quality of the dye, these photos will last up to 100 years. I love them. I love this printer. Now, it also you know connects to Wi-Fi. It supports Apple AirDrop, and so I just print all my pictures there. I've been using that printer for uh, for a good number of years. And um, What paper are you using for that, though? Are you using just a no, regular? No, it's, it, you, you buy special the paper. The photo, photo paper, yeah. You buy the special photo paper, yeah. and then, you, and then you, you put in a pack of the dye, and then you, and then you, and they have, and the dye might have enough for, say, 15 sheets of paper. Okay. And you put in 15 sheets of paper. Yeah, yeah. And okay. so the the other good thing about the dye is that it doesn't age like like the um, it won't fade too over time. Yeah. It doesn't fade. No, it's, yeah. it's it's a very high quality print. 
So um, I, I really do. Uh, I really do like it. This is my second selfie, by the way. I, the first one, uh, uh, something happened. I don't know. Somebody somebody used it, messed it up. So I just got got a new one, and I love it. I like them really well. Uh, we got an email from um, uh, Kathy in Chicago. Dear Tech Talk, a couple of years ago, I had a really bad breakup with an ex. I've got thousands. We had thousands of posts on my timeline, Facebook timeline. And now they always start pop- popping up in memory. Um, I-, I just don't want to see these. Is there any way to block those? Because it just brings up too many bad memories. Well, the answer, um, Kathy, is that, yeah, you can block them. Uh, it's uh, it's easy to do, and uh, and it will work in most cases. I mean, it's not a perfect block, but it works pretty well. Now, if you've got a, uh, if you log on to Facebook with your laptop or desktop manager, log on to your uh, or uh, log on to your Facebook account and visit the news feed page. Now, scroll down and click the memories link in the left-hand column. Uh, then click on the hide people link on the left column. And then type in your ex's name and do the search box. Find uh, find the, the name of his profile. And then uh, highlight that profile name and then click save. And then at that point, uh, all of the links relating to that particular person will be blocked. So why doesn't it work every time then? Why are there some gaps in that? Because somebody may have reposted it something and it would be against right. another name. So no, yeah, so it's going so, by, it's not facial recognition or anything like that. No. It's just going by the links to that particular right. account. So if anything was yeah. reposted or commented on, it, it can show up on the memory page again. If yeah. there was no reposting, it would be perfect. Right. Yeah. Now, uh, so something will come through, but most of it will be blocked. We got an email from Don in Richmond. Dear Tech Talk, I bought an older Dell laptop after answering an ad on Craigslist. Uh, Don, I'm not certain I would do that, really, but but you've got you've done it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, got away with it this time. <laughs> yeah, and the guy told me I'd be able to put a second hard drive on it, which sounded like a good deal. Well, I I uh, so I went to Best Buy and bought a one terabyte uh, laptop hard drive. Then when I turned it over, there's only one. <laughs> door on the bottom and I opened that door there's only one hard drive in there is is it possible that the place for the other hard drive is hidden and I can't see it well Don uh, well some older Dell laptops do support internal hard two internal hard drives but they each have their own access point access uh, door and if there's only one door underneath the laptop you've only got one hard drive I'm uh, sorry to say now um so what you can do is you could you could uh, you could swap the hard drive. You could put in you could just swap it out, and you would you would have to uh, um, you know you'd have to do a disk image of it, and then put it in there. That you could do that, or you could just make the terabyte drive an external hard drive. Now what I what I would have done actually, uh, I would have probably bought a solid state hard drive because what. I suspect slowing it down the most is a slow hard drive. If you got a solid state hard drive, I think it would really it would really speed things up. Then you could use that one terabyte hard drive as an external USB drive. But in either case, uh, um, I think you'll not have two hard drives on there, but and you'll have one. And hopefully, this computer is going to do everything that you hope it will do. 
Uh, we got an email from, uh, let's see, from Kevin in Gainesville. Their tech talk a while back. Oh, no, I, got, I just, oh, let's see. No, I no. This was yeah. Oh yeah, this was yeah. This was from Kevin in Gainesville a, a while back. I replaced a hard drive on my HP laptop with a solid state hard drive, and um, after uh, and then I took the old one out, uh, and I'm using it as an external hard drive. Now the problem is that that external hard drive has the old boot partition on it. So it's got multiple partitions with the, with the operating system. I would like to just have one giant partition for that external hard drive so I've got more space. Is there any way that I can uh, repartition that external hard drive so that I've got the full hard drive in one partition? Well, it is very easy to do that. Uh, but what you have to be careful of while you're doing it is that you repartition the correct hard drive. You know, because you're you're gonna you're gonna use software that'll partition any hard drive you select, and if you pick the wrong hard drive and you partition the Solus 8 hard drive on your computer, repartition it, you'll have to reinstall everything again. So just be very careful of that. So w what you want to do is um, what you want you press uh, press Windows E key, Windows plus E key. It's a two key that brings up File Explorer. Windows button plus the E key brings up. File Explorer, right-click on this PC. There'll be this PC in the left-hand column, and then click Manage, then click Disk Management. Now, in the bottom section of Disk Management, it'll now list two drives. It'll list your solid-state hard drive and the external hard drive. Now, more than likely, Disk 0 will be the solid-state hard drive. You don't want to touch that. Disk 1 is going to be the external hard drive. Now verify that you've picked the right disk, and then what you want to do, you 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 uh, you right-click on that disk, and uh, and you will see something, uh, and then you click on partition, the partition selection, and then you click delete volume, and you delete the volume of the active partition, and then you repeat the process until all partitions have been deleted. At that point, there are no partitions. Now you can right-click on the hard drive, and you can create a new partition. And this time, the new partition will be the entire hard drive. And then you format it, and you're done. And you'll have the full hard drive. All the other files will be there. It's relatively easy to do. But the biggest mistake that people make is they pick the wrong hard drive, and they... Um, create a huge problem for themselves. So when you're selecting the hard drive and before you delete the partitions, make certain that you're talking about the external hard drive. Uh, we got an email from Alice in Wonderland. Dear Tech Talk, I live in a three-level single-family home and got a Verizon Fios, uh, you know, internet service, internet service provider. I got an iMac on the main floor and an Apple TV in the basement. Today, nearly all the shows that I loaded on my Apple TV wouldn't come out. They just, I just see a spinning icon on the screen. Now, I rebooted the power to the Apple TV, and it didn't fix the issue. What's wrong with my Apple TV? What's going on? Thanks, Alice in Wonderland. Well, Alice, more than likely, you've got to reboot your Wi-Fi router. Whenever I got a problem with Internet access in the house, I just reboot my router. So rebooting your Apple TV is not going to fix Internet. It looks to me like you don't have Internet connection to your 
Apple TV. So just go back, go downstairs, and unplug your router, plug it back in again, and then reboot your Apple TV and see if that fixes it. That's That always works for me at my house. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. And we'll find out what's up with WhatsApp as Tech Talk Radio continues. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio presented by Stratford University coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Well, profiles in IT. Okay, there we go. <laughs> Profiles in IT. Today we're going to feature Jan Coombe. Now, Jan Coombe is a computer programmer, uh, best known as co-founder and CEO of WhatsApp, a mobile messaging application that was acquired by Facebook. Now, I'm going to feature Jan Coombe today because he was one of the people who was really pushing end-to-end end encrypted communication that would be available to anyone. He came from the uh, Ukraine and he did not like the government snooping in on whatever he was having to say to his neighbors. Now, Jan Kuhn was born February 24, 1976 in Kiev, Ukraine. He grew up in Fostiv, Ukraine. In 1992, he moved with his mother and grandmother to Mountain View, California. He was 16 at the time. Now, the family was supported by welfare after they arrived and lived in a small two-bedroom apartment. At first, Coombs' mother worked as a babysitter while he worked as a cleaner at a grocery store. In 1994, he enrolled in San Jose State University where he became interested in programming. Now, while at school, he worked at Ernst & Young as a security tester. While there, he met 
Brian Acton. Oh, I've got it misspelled here. A C T O N. Yeah, you have a better version, actually. Yeah. What a cool uh, that would be a cool name, Brian Action. Brian Action Absolutely. would be would be a better name. That's what I've got written there. It's like yeah. I type act Acton, but my fingers go Action. Yeah, Brian Action, IT superhero. That's right. <laughs> In 1996, he he joined a group of hackers. I mean, every young kid back in the day would join a group of hackers, he, especially if he was out in California. Now, this group began uh, in 19... Uh, they, the, the actual group was a new group. They started in 1996. They were called W00, W00, for short, woo-woo. Uh, and he met there the future founders of Napster, uh, Sean Fawning and Jordan Ritter. In 1997, Brian Acton... I can't believe I t- typed this wrong every single time. So it wasn't an autofill? I was thinking maybe it was just it autofill. Could, I, think it, <laughs> I think it was autofill when I was typing it this morning. Yeah. <laughs> Acton, he, he hired Kuhn at, um, at, uh, at Yahoo as an infrastructure engineer. Now, now, now at that time, Kuhn was like a, a senior. But as soon as he got a job at Yahoo, he quit school. <laughs> he never graduated from... Uh, this, this is a recurring theme, by the way, and there's a lot of concerned parents in the world who worry about their kids succeeding in this life. Don't worry so much about schooling. <laughs> I know, <laughs> right? So that's right. So Brian, uh, you know, uh, you know, Brian got him there, and then and, and convinced him just to devote everything to Yahoo. Now Acton served as a mentor. Oh, I spelled it correctly this time. Acton served as a mentor uh, to uh, to Jan. He invited him over to his house. He took him skiing. He wanted to teach him about America because he had sort of had a, you know, a limited life coming from Ukraine and then just working, uh, working pretty much full time after he got here. In September of 2007, uh, he convinced Coom, Acton convinced Coom that they ought to just quit Yahoo <laughs> and take a year off and travel around South America playing ultimate frisbee now this just seems like a ridiculous career move i had to look up ultimate frisbee it's like it's sort of like soccer two teams play against each other and you throw a disc they were shown a disc looked like a pie plate actually and you throw the between you throw the discs between players you can't run with the disc and you try to get over the goal line with it so it's like soccer but without a soccer ball has played with it well, I'm guessing, you know, they went around and met new people that way because it's, it's a game for several players on each team, right? So Every, they had to find players. other guys to play with wherever they were, right? And uh, it's a way to meet people. And they, and they, entered, they entered tournaments. It's, it's really an organized kind of sport. Mm-hmm. They, they entered tournaments, and yeah. they, uh, they, they thought they would do that. Well, when they, when they got back in 2000 and, uh, you know, the year later, 2000 and middle, middle of 2008, they thought, well, we better get a job. So they applied for Facebook. Both applied at Facebook. Facebook turned them down. They said, you guys aren't serious. Going to <laughs> South America playing ultimate frisbee. So it was a bad, it was a bad uh, CV move. Don't put it on your resume. Maybe no, that's the lesson here. Maybe that's a, the lesson here. It was a bad move. Yeah. It was a bad yeah, move. What did you do this past year? I played ultimate frisbee. <laughs> <laughs> now, in, in January of 2009, uh, Coom bought a, an iPhone. And he started playing around with it, and he looked at, at the App Store, and he realized that the App Store was about to spawn a whole new industry of applications. He got an idea. He visited his friend Alex Fishman, 
And over tea in the kitchen, I mean, uh, Jan was a tea drinker, over tea in the kitchen, he talked about the idea with his friend uh, for a new app. Now, Kuhn decided to call the app, the, the application, WhatsApp, because it sounded like, what's up? <laughs> yeah, what's up, Doc? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just like that. Just like that. Just like that. What's up, Doc? Yeah. Except if you say it with a Ukrainian accent, you probably can't tell the difference between what's up and what's up. Uh, I think you're exactly yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> they probably thought it rhymed. That's right. Now, a week later on his birthday, February 24, 2009, he incorporated WhatsApp in California. Now, Brian Acton, who had been a computer science uh, uh, major at at Stanford, he, he, by the way, did graduate, was his co-founder. So Brian was sort of the, I guess we'd say the business manager, and Jan Kuhn was, a, you know, the technical guy. So the two officially founded WhatsApp later that year with the idea that smartphone users should be able to easily send messages to each other without incurring fees from phone carriers. So you can just, it's basically what they call over the top. It's just using data. It's just, it's an IP, an internet protocol communication that goes directly from phone to phone, and you don't have to make a phone call, so it just uses your data. Or if you're on Wi-Fi, you don't even use your own data, and it's basically a free call. Now, WhatsApp does not collect any information. He says, I, I like total privacy. It doesn't collect name, gender, address, age. Instead, the users are approved after their phone numbers are authenticated. In other words, you give them the phone number, they'll send you a text message back. They know it's your phone number and your account is good to go. You've got to give them no information. Now, this approach was shaped by his experience when growing up in a communist country with secret police. He appreciated communication that was not bugged or taped. So he built into WhatsApp from the beginning point-end-to-end -to -end encryption so he could have private communication. There's a handwritten note on his desk when he was at uh, running uh, WhatsApp. It said, no ads, no games, no gimmicks. Now, uh, and you know that's still true today. They, yeah, they stay true to that, didn't they? They did. Yeah, to the as as much as they could when Facebook got their hands on it. Mm -hmm. Which is ironic, <laughs> since they you know got rejected by Facebook, and then Facebook eventually likes this idea very much. They did. They, uh, they now they w when they built this thing up, they they didn't get any public relations people. They just relied on word of mouth. The service became popular with friends and family communicating in different countries. Now, Jan and Brian remained devoted to a clean, lightning-fast communication service that worked flawlessly, and this approach paid off. WhatsApp grew to over 450 million users. That's twice as many as Twitter. And the users were active, sending billions of messages every day. Now, the two founders also avoided the Silicon Valley investors. I mean... Brian likes to say that he, I mean, people call him an entrepreneur. He gets mad when they do that because he says entrepreneurs are out to make money. He says, I'm just a developer that wants to make good things to help society. Um, they did not take any funding until 2011 when Sequoia Capital invested $8 million for 15% in WhatsApp. Now, but with that many users, of course, Mark Zuckerberg is going to take note. 
mm-hmm. the founder of Facebook. So he contacted Kuhn in the spring of 2012, and the two began meeting at a coffee shop in Los Altos, California, because, well, Zoom drinks coffee. He likes coffee. Jan likes coffee. And they began, a, and then they began going out for a series of dinners and walks. On February 9th, 2014, that's a couple of years later, Kuhn, Zuckerberg asked Kuhn to have dinner at his home. I mean, he worked on Kuhn for two years because I'm telling you, Kuhn did not trust Facebook or Zuckerberg. He, uh, Zuckerberg invited him to dinner at his home and formally proposed that Coombe um, sell WhatsApp to Facebook and he would be able to join the Facebook board. So this is a huge turnaround. He had been rejected by Facebook when he applied for employment. Uh, his friend had been rejected, Brian Acton, and now he was going to be on the board of directors. <laughs> what a turnaround. Ten days later, Facebook announced that it was acquiring WhatsApp for $19 billion. Now, that's not bad, considering when did they start that? They started that in uh, 2009. He incorporated it. Five years later, it was worth $19 billion. Wow. That's really quite— Now, so over—now, basically— his share was about because he, you know, he had gotten investors, so his share, uh, um, Jan Coombs' share was about four point eight uh, billion. That was his share. Plus, he had options with Facebook. So, uh, in the first half of 2016, he sold half of his shares for two point four billion. He needed a little, you know, a little, uh, cha- you know, change to, uh, to, um, you know, I guess to pursue his ultimate frisbee uh, career. In 2018, he announced he was leaving WhatsApp two years after Facebook took over and that he was stepping down from Facebook board of directors due to disputes with Facebook. Here's what Facebook was doing. They were tracking people. This idea of no tracking was gone. Uh huh. They were tracking people, and they were doing what Facebook always does. Track. So, so that was the value in the, what they're getting out of the value of of it now. Yeah. But what was it before? I mean, I've sort of uh, recently uh, joined uh, WhatsApp, uh-huh. and since they're only authenticating with a phone number, there are uh-huh. no ads. I mean, there isn't a whole lot of data for them to play with, right? Where are they making their money? Well, here's no. Here's the thing: uh, when you're on WhatsApp, you're on a browser. Mm-hmm. The browser is a footprint. Mm-hmm. Facebook tracks the footprint of your browser. So they can track you. They, they know who you are, even though you haven't told them. So it's actually a browser, even though it looks like an app on your phone? Yeah, so that, yeah, so they're, they're, able, to, they're able to track that. Yeah, it's an app. No, actually, it, it, yeah, it's... Uh, but they must have some info, some identifying info. There is a info. way to track it because they can, when you're, when you're, when you're browsing with your phone... There's actually a um, an ID for the phone, mm-hmm, right? And the and the phone ID is visible, mm-hmm. and so they can link your phone ID to your browser activity. Now I'm thinking the phone ID is visible within WhatsApp. Yeah. So they're able to track it. I mean, what? So, so they're pairing it with another data set, what, basically. What Zuck, yeah. Where the dispute was, Zuckerberg reconfigured WhatsApp to eliminate the anonymous 
piece of it mm-hmm. by adjusting the back end. Okay. Yeah. And Facebook owned it. So he could do that. And, uh, and Jan Coombs said, look, this isn't what I want. This is not what I believe. And I'm going to quit. Right. So he quit. And then he and Brian Acton formed something called Signal, which is another encrypted, encrypted communication channel that's completely anonymous. So they went on to found some another company called Signal, which would carry out the vision that he wanted for WhatsApp. So in the end, it was uh, it uh, Facebook really couldn't follow their vision because in the end, Facebook wants money. Yeah, they just can't resist the urge, right? To, now, to, to take advantage of every little bit of data they can collect. Now he he was so adamant that he when he quit, he. He had to stay another year with Facebook to, to pull in around a, another billion dollars in options. Mm-hmm. When he quit, he thought he gave up those options. He could have waited a year and gotten a billion dollars in options. And he just, it was a, out of principle, he just walked. Wow. Now, it, tur- it turned out because of the fine print, he was able to recoup 450 million of those options. Okay. There was Because it wasn't. He wasn't completely resigned from Facebook. He just resigned from WhatsApp, but he was technically still a Facebook employee, so he could qualify for some of those options. So a year later, he picked up another $450 million. His mom died from uh, cancer in 2000. Uh, His father died in Ukraine in 1997. He donated in 2014 a million dollars to the the Free BSD Foundation. That's the... uh, the, uh, uh, um, version of Unix that is free, uh, the BSD, free BSD. And, uh, and he also contributed $556 million to the Silicon Valley Community Foundation the same year. His estimated net worth in July of 2021 is $10.4 billion. And the funny thing is he was never trying to go after money. He just wanted to create something that would be useful for the world. And he really did. I mean, I know a lot of people, even the last decade or so, that uh, I had a friend in Poland uh, that said, you know, join WhatsApp and we can communicate, you know, so much cheaper. So we can have phone calls it free. Is. And mean, that's a big deal for a lot of people. All of our connections in India, it's only WhatsApp. If you don't have a WhatsApp account, people can't call you. Nobody will call you with the cell phone because right. it's too expensive. Absolutely. So everybody in India is WhatsApp. Every, I mean, I was in Iraqi Kurdistan. That's all. All my connections overseas are WhatsApp. And uh, now in, in the U.S., I mean, I, I was always a, a big Skype user. But, uh, you know, Skype was purchased by Microsoft, and, it, um, and it's just a little bit kludgier than WhatsApp. WhatsApp is so convenient to use. So yeah, I've become a it WhatsApp is clean. Con- I mean, it's clean and spare, and that part of it is still true yeah. and still useful. Yeah, but they do, uh, in Facebook's special way, they still do track you. I know. <laughs> and, they, you know, Facebook can, tra- you know, because, you know, Facebook used to be able to track what website you'd go to, and you could say, I want to only send ads to people that have visited this website. And Facebook was able to track that. But then recently there have been some privacy issues, and that that advertising avenue was taken away. But uh, there you go. Everything you wanted to know about Jan Coombe, the inspiration and co-founder of WhatsApp. Well, I hope you've been paying attention because the Tech Talk quiz is back, baby. So stay tuned to Tech Talk Radio. 
If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio presented by Stratford University coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Yeah, Doc, I heard that this is more than, I don't know where I heard this, but it's not just a radio show. Yes, this is not just a radio show. <laughs> I'm not sure show. where oh, I heard yeah, this, this, but... this is not just a radio show. Yeah, can you explain show. that to me? What else is this? Yes. <laughs> this is time for us to assess whether our audience has been listening to the Classroom of the Airways. And how do we do that, Doc? With a pop quiz. Earlier in the show, we were talking about um, Jan Coom. He, of course, was the uh, co-founder of uh, WhatsApp. Now, when he was uh, just before, when he just returned back from his uh, trip to South America playing Ultimate Frisbee, he applied at a particular company, and that company turned him down. They also turned down Brian Acton. They would not hire them. And ultimately, Jan became associated with that company. What was the name of that company? All right. If you know the answer, you know the phone number. It's 877-936-9333. Once again, it's 877-936-9333. And call now. Yes, indeed. So let us, uh, let's go down here and talk about the uh, 21, uh, 20, uh, 2021 LG Nobel Prize winners. Now, this is one of my favorite uh, favorite award ceremonies. They... They basically uh, select the most ridiculous research items that you can have. And each winner's done something that makes people laugh and then think. And here are a few of, of the awards. Now, in the category of biology, a team of researchers won a prize for analyzing variations in purring, chirping, chattering, trilling, tweedling, murmuring, meowing, and moaning of cats. And they were trying to document cat-human communication. And they won that prize for biology. In chemistry, a team of researchers won a prize for chemically analyzing the air inside of movie theaters to test whether the odors produced by the audience could reliably predict 
the levels of violence, sex, antisocial behavior, drug use, or bad language. Uh, as the audience was watching the, as the audience was watching the movie, that is for the the prize for chemistry in ecology. A group of researchers won a prize for the genetic analysis, which identified the different species of bacteria that reside on wads of bubblegum that are discarded on the street in various countries around the world. And they found differences in the bacteria based on the country. In the category of medicine, they demonstrated that uh, orgasms can be as effective as decongestant medicine in improving a nasal breathing. I don't know how they would have done that, conducted that particular research. In the area of economics, a group of researchers got an award for discovering that the obesity of the country's politicians was a good indicator of the country's corruption. <laughs> Think about that. Apparently, the— Well, I don't know if I believe that one. Like, okay, Vladimir Putin's in fantastic shape. The one thing—the one good thing you have to say about the man is he's in fantastic shape. So I'm yeah. not so sure how that is a measure of authoritarianism. Yeah, well, well he's, he, he's, an, he's an outrigger. I okay, think. there's always the exception that I guess. There's always the exception yeah. of Vladimir Putin. And then in the Peace Prize, a group of researchers got, a, uh, got an award for— uh, and analyzing the hypothesis that humans evolved beards to protect them from punches in the face. So they actually took people with different beards and they hit them in the face and measured the impact of the hit on their skin to see whether it would, uh, whether it would uh, you know, whether it would actually protect them. In the etymology prize category, they developed, this team of researchers developed a new method to control cockroaches above submarines. You know, did you ever think submarines would have cockroaches? Well, it depends, you know, where the port of call was, maybe. Oh, yeah. Maybe, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe like they if bring you have a cockroach-infested city, you know, maybe Brooklyn Navy Yard, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> maybe they maybe they bring them in with the food, well, it could, yeah. Yeah, they could hitch a ride. They could hitch a ride. And in the transportation prize, this was the funniest picture, they, they studied methods to carry— um, to carry rhinoceroses from one location to another. And they developed a technique where they would tie the four legs up on the helicopter and carry the rhinoceros upside down. And they did research to see whether the upside-down carrying position would actually alter the uh, ability of the rhinoceros to breathe. And they determined that they could ride upside down without a problem at all. Now, most of the new winners will be given a free public talk to explain, if they can— what they did, and why they did it. So there you go. The LG prizes are out and announced. Doc, we still don't have a winner, so let's uh, try again, ask you the question. Yeah, earlier in the show, I talked about Jan Coombe. He, of course, is the co-founder of WhatsApp. What company rejected them? They, wouldn't, they, couldn't hire, they would not hire either Brian Acton or Jan Coombe. And ultimately... Jan Coombe was on the uh, board of directors of that very same company that re that rejected him. Absolutely. It's 877-936-9333, 877-936-9333. Now, security professionals are worried why people don't implement two-factor authentication because it's the best way to protect your sites. I mean, uh, Twitter did an analysis, 
and they discovered that only 2.3% of their users implement two-factor authentication. And it's the best way to, to do it in case somebody, you know, guesses your password. And how two-factor authentication works would be you, you log on to the site, you put in your password. After you put in your password, the site you're logging into sends a text message to your phone with a code. You enter that code into the website, and that's the second factor to authenticate. And then if you put in the correct code, you're, you're in. So that means somebody cannot log into your account unless they have access to your cell phone. It really does protect account integrity in the event that the passwords are out. So in my case, any, any websites that are really important to me that involve money that I really want to make certain I control, I use two-factor authentication. Now, I may not use it on all sites because not all sites matter that much to me, but if, it, if it's a significant site to me and matters, I use two-factor authentication. It's really, really the way to go. Doc, I have to tell you, we don't have a winner, but even though the caller did not know the answer to, um, to, to the question, he did want to point out that it's actually the IG Nobel, the Ig Nobel Prize. In the other Ig Nobel Prize. Yeah, see, now it makes sense. Now I understand what you were saying. Yeah, the okay. Ig Nobel Prize. Yes. Yes. That All right. was very good. Not the Nobel Prize, the Ig Nobel Prize. Absolutely. Yeah, that I always wait for the Ig Nobel Prize to come out. It's really, <laughs> really the best. Yeah. We got a judgment. The judgment is finally here between, uh, you know, the court case between Epic and uh, Apple. If you remember, um, Epic Games have been at odds over the transaction fee on the store. Epic, uh, of course, has uh, Fortnite which is a very popular game. And what Apple was doing, if people want to do in-app purchases, like, you know, you know, get new, get new uniforms, get new weapons, and the in-app purchases are a big part of, 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 Fort, of, of Epic's revenue, Apple takes 30%. And um, uh, Epic said, look, we should be able to have out of, uh, out, uh, purchases that are not run through the App Store. So they basically set up, uh, modified their app to allow uh, to allow purchases outside of the app store, so they wouldn't pay the thirty percent. And Apple kicked them off the site, kicked them out of the app store, and that set up for the major, major lawsuit. So Epic Games sued Apple, and uh, and the judge came back with the opinion just this last week. Now, under the judge's new order. Apps are must now be allowed to to allow users to buy things beyond those offered on the Apple Store. So the judge is saying that Apple cannot block a a, a, a developer from selling additional services to users outside of the Apple ecosystem. Now the injunction is scheduled to take effect in 90 days, and you know, subject to an appeal. Now in a separate judgment. Uh, the court confirmed that Epic Games was in breach of the original contract when they started selling things outside of the Apple Store and that they have to pay Apple the 30% that was due under that prior contract, which amounts to $3.5 million. The judge also said that um, the Apple Store is not uh, a violation of antitrust, so um, 
Apple can, in fact, insist that only applications that are approved for the Apple Store can be installed on an iPhone. So it was a, a mixed win. Apple basically held up, got the integrity of the App Store that they can have exclusive applications on the App Store that have been approved by Apple. And Epic won the fact that they can actually sell things in-app purchases outside of the App Store and not pay 30%. So I think the, the judge sort of just came right down in the middle on that. Uh, Solomonic wisdom. That's right. I think he did that quite nicely. Doc, do you want to take a break and have okay. a sip of that good radio station coffee? Yeah, I'd love that. All right, let's do that. Tech Talk Radio continues. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers – more of Tech Talk Radio presented by Stratford University coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time, profiles from the bunker. You know, it's been 20 years since uh, since 9-11. And... Uh, and really, technology has changed quite, quite dramatically. For one thing, for one thing, back in 2001, we really didn't have social media. And, uh, and so there was not this, um, this, you know, constantly updating. We also didn't have uh, cell phones that, that basically could... Uh, could you know, could that, where you could surf the web. Back in the day, the a cell phone was basically just actually a computer. I mean, a, it was basically just a, um, a a telephone. And so we we really didn't have the uh, sort of the ubiquitous communication that we have now. But since then, everything has changed. There have been substantial changes to. The entire technology. Let me get the right page here. And um, okay. that's page five, Doc. Yeah, page, I'm on page <laughs> five. Now I'm trying to look for page six. Oh, <laughs> I can't find page six, and then I'll be done. 
Here you go. Take my copy. Okay, that's what I need. There's yeah, what I still need. Still living in a paper world here. Still living that's in a, a little ironic for you and me, isn't it? I living know. in a paper world? I don't know. So there have been substantial changes since uh, since 9-11. I, I, I still remember 9-11. We were sitting there at the, in the conference room there at the Stratford watching the, watching the towers. But since then, we've had substantial changes in news transmission, technology innovation, telecom networks, disaster preparedness personal privacy, digital inequity, and security levels, you know, around the world. So many things have shifted. For one thing, we now have, since 2011, I would say instant news and misinformation. Now, news spreads quickly throughout the digital websites, social media platforms, mobile calls, and instant messages. Tweets fly around the world, and people pretty much know about important, important events almost immediately, as soon as they take place. This has created also an echo chamber where you tend to sign up for sites and feeds that agree with your opinions, and then you get reinforcement. And this echo chamber effect means that we have uh, become separated as a nation. Sort of the national discourse has been damaged, and now we're pretty much a divided nation. Everybody reads, the, listens to their news source, and things change. I, I don't think we had it back then. The second thing that happened, we've got uh, more robust networks, but they are vulnerable to, um, to attack. Our communication networks are, are more broad-based and robust than 20 years ago. Back, uh, back when 9-11 was at, people couldn't even get through to the cell towers. The, the cells, the, the, um, the, the mobile phone lines the, were just completely saturated. You couldn't find out anything. We couldn't find out if our chef was safe in the Pentagon because all the phone service was down. The government agencies and, and uh, private companies beefed up disaster preparation and telecommunication providers strengthened their digital infrastructure. So now we've got a robust phone system. However, that phone system is now, uh, is now bereft with uh, ransomware attacks, unwanted digital intrusion. So we've got malicious actors that are trying to bring it down. Uh, we also have attacks that uh, that occur from both state-sponsored sources from around the world as well as criminal enterprises. And then we've got the real debate, privacy versus national security. And the balance between privacy and national security has shifted remar remarkably since 9-11. See, if you remember back in the beginning, after 9-11, they passed the Patriot Act that allowed the uh, the government to uh, to track all the meta metadata for phone calls. They could scan for keywords. All that massive amount of data was stored at the telco at the telco uh, web server sites, data centers, and the government had a back door where they could go in and directly look at all that data, scoop that data out, and do whatever they wanted with it. Now the rule was at the time that you could only look at data for foreigners because it was you couldn't you couldn't spy on US citizens so they had a FISA court and if you were uh, spying on somebody from another country and they were talking to US citizens you could actually look at those conversations because they would be flagged because they were talking to somebody from from another location and so there was a um, FISA court that would actually allow that to happen now, if you remember, um, Snowden uh, basically took all this classified data and released it. So shortly after that release, all the terrorists knew that their 
phone calls would be tracked by this uh, by the U.S. authorities because of the Patriot Act. So at that point, none of the terrorists were using uh, unencrypted phone call sessions. They were all uh, sessions. They were all basically using uh, end-to-end encrypted communication like WhatsApp. So the Patriot Act is only useful for tracking down U.S. citizens now, and I think it's lost its utility for tracking down terrorists. Now, in the beginning, I think it did work, but now I think it's gone. I think the Patriot Act is, I think, is doing, in terms of the balance of benefit versus uh, risk, I think it's now riskier to keep it, and I think the benefits are much diminished. So I think it's time for the Patriot Act to go. So with all of these changes, I think we've got to go back and reclaim our privacy. It's really important. And with all of the changes in social media, we've got to find a way where we can address the problems of misinformation, personal privacy, cybersecurity, and and what we call civic toxic, toxicity, where we just have these two two groups that are that are um, fighting each other. So things have shifted since 20, 2001. And not all for the better, unfortunately. Not all for the better, no. no. That is very true. That is very, very true. So now what we can do is, uh, let's see here. Got everything. Yeah, we've got about two minutes left. Okay, two minutes left. So the idea of the week is link join. Uh, this is a, this was really a great idea. Seth Raphael is a middle school. He's an eighth grader when the pandemic hit. And he, along with a lot, with millions of other students, were put on Zoom calls. Now, Seth and his friends were always facing this common problem that they were being late for their frequent Zoom classes. I mean, it turned out teachers were sending Zoom links in a, in, on Google Docs, on spreadsheets, and, and the students were having trouble figuring out which link went with which Zoom meeting, and, they, and they, they would try to get in on the Zoom meeting, and they click on the wrong link. So Seth devised a solution to the problem. His idea, and his idea involved in the link join, it's a web app that stores and automatically opens Zoom links to deliver the Zoom meeting on time. Now, he wrote the original code for LinkJoin in Python and shared it with friends, and they loved it. And what LinkJoin would do, it would sort of scan through everybody's email, and they would, uh, and it would pull in all the links, look at the time. It would automatically bring up the Zoom call on time. He's got six, he had 650 users right away. Now he plans to, uh, to go to Educause and uh, and advertise it as a broad thing, as a broad-based service. You can go to linkjoin.xyz if you want to get that thing done. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.